This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, October the 21st, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Too slow on a Friday. The horns got me. And the battle continues. Coming up on the show today, the news panel takes a closer look at some of the findings from the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act and some of the political infighting that's come to the forefront. Michael McNeely will offer up his thoughts on the Superfest Disability Film Festival. That one's already underway, so Michael will share some thoughts. And International Artist Day is next week. Karen McKay from the Stitcher, several books that celebrate art. So we're running the gambit today. A lot of politics in the first hour of the show, entertainment and getting your weekend started just right. Thank you for making the time to be with us today. Let's begin the show with our top story of the day. A senior Ontario provincial police officer is expected to be cross-examined this morning at the Emergencies Act inquiry. Lori Paris looks ahead. Superintendent Craig Abrams told the commission yesterday that his officers saw dysfunction in the ranks of the Ottawa Police Service even from the early days of the protest. He says Ottawa Police failed to come up with an operational plan and were not properly deploying OPP officers sent to Ottawa to help control the Freedom Convoy protests in February. Senior police and City of Ottawa officials have painted a picture of disorganization between police forces and levels of government in response to the mass demonstrations. The ultimate goal is to examine the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act three weeks into the crisis and report on whether the unprecedented move was warranted. Laurie Paris, The Canadian Press. Let's focus on another story related to an inquiry. Nova Scotia's mass shooting inquiry has released partial recordings of an RCMP meeting at the center of allegations of political interference into the police's messaging of the mass massacre. In the recordings, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky says she understands the force cannot release detail about the make and model of each of the weapons used by the gunman. But she goes on to say that she felt frustrated when she learned the speaking notes used for an earlier RCMP news conference did not include a reference to the weapons as semi-automatic or assault style. Lucky says publicly sharing basic facts about the weapon used was a request she received from a minister's office, though she did not identify the minister. Let's get to another story about politics. The Supreme Court of Canada has decided not to hear a case of residential school survivors who have fought a battle against Ottawa to release thousands of records. Stephanie Taylor has that story. The group of survivors from St. Anne's Residential School in Northern Ontario had looked to the highest court after spending years fighting Ottawa to hand over records. The survivors say the federal government is in breach of the historic Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement because it withheld documentation of physical and sexual abuse when deciding their compensation. The federal government has long maintained it has met all of its obligations on disclosing documents and asked that the case be dismissed. Stephanie Taylor, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Now let's turn to the rapidly evolving world of British politics. Liz Truss, the former Prime Minister, stepped down 
basically as the show started yesterday, uh, breaking news in real time on Now with Dave Brown. Well, a familiar face is looking to make a quick comeback. Charles de Ledesma has the story. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson is among several British lawmakers trying to scoop up support ahead of a short, intense contest to become the country's next Prime Minister. The Conservative Party is choosing a replacement for Liz Truss, who quit on Thursday after a turbulent 45-day term. Favourites include former Treasury Chief Rishi Sunak and a House of Commons leader Penny Mordaunt. The wild card is Johnson, who was forced to resign by the party just three months ago amid scandals. Meanwhile, opposition leaders are calling for an early general election. Charles Tuladesma, London. To paraphrase the Grateful Dead, what a short, strange trip it's been. Canada's High Commissioner in London says he expects the relationship with the UK to remain steady despite this ongoing turbulence. Ralph Goodale says trade talks should continue without issue. I don't anticipate uh, any appreciable hiccup in the process that would uh, that would delay the negotiating process or or stop us from reaching the targets goodale says the issues around a free trade deal transcend any politics of the day let's follow up on an, on another story that i've shared with you throughout the week the un security council has scheduled a vote on a resolution that would demand an immediate end to violence in Haiti. The vote would also impose sanctions on a gang leader whose gang has blocked a key fuel terminal, leading to some shortages. The U.S. and Mexico had delayed a vote on their resolution from Wednesday and made several revisions in hopes of gaining more support from the 15 council members. The final version eliminates references to the Haitian prime minister's call for urgent dispatch of international military forces to tackle the violence. And one more story for you. There is speculation about job cuts at Twitter if a purchase by Elon Musk goes through. Tim McGuire has the story. The Washington Post, citing documents and unnamed sources, reports billionaire Elon Musk, should he go through with his purchase of Twitter, would gut the company's workforce by as much as 75 percent, dropping it from some 7,500 to less than 2,000 people. Wedbush analyst Dan Ives says that might attract investors, but it would set the company back years. Experts in Twitter's own staff said earlier drastic cuts could lead to an overrun of harmful content and spam which Musk himself has warned against. Twitter and a representative for Musk attorney Alex Spiro did not immediately respond to messages seeking comment. I'm Tim McGuire. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you can vote on Facebook. Yesterday, as we found ourselves talking quite a bit about parasports and other forms of organized sport, I asked you, do you participate? in organized sports, plan a team, go to tournaments. 22% of you said yes, and 78% of you said no. Today's daily poll, coming from the world of my own meandering autobiographical experience, there are some concert tickets that go on sale today at 10 a.m. Eastern time to Death Cab for Cutie at Massey Hall in Toronto. Obviously, your boy cannot be buying those tickets in real time because he's hosting a show. Same thing happened with Blink-182 on Monday. That's, that's life. You need a job to pay for the tickets. But there were options available to me. If I'd been a real keener, I could have joined the band's fan club and gotten access to a presale. So that's the question for today at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Would you join an artist's fan club for early access to concert tickets, album releases, merchandise, etc.? 
yes or no. Let's first go to Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, have you? Would you? What would you do? Yeah, Dave, I can absolutely say that I have. And depending on the artist, I certainly will do it again. Um, I think from my recollection, I've done it twice. I did it years ago, back in like 2009 for ACDC when they came to North America for their Black Ice Tour. You know, it was one of those things that hadn't come in years. So it's like, okay, I I love ACDC. I want to see them. I got to give myself every single opportunity to do it. And then I also did it for Iron Maiden a few years later because I'm a big fan of them. The problem was you have to be very careful when you sign up for those fan clubs and to get those early access. Because when I was trying to get the ACDC tickets, I was like, oh, I, I haven't done this before. Let's figure out how it is. Oh, there's a code. Okay, I just punch it in. And I accidentally was like kind of figuring out the process and went into a completely different show in like, I think, Georgia. And I accidentally used my one time code for that. And so then I signed up for nothing because I didn't get the code for the Toronto show to use. So luckily I still got tickets, but that was a very stressful uh, time between when I, I punched in the code to when I was actually able to get my ticket. The state of Georgia or the country of Georgia? The state of Georgia, they, they were doing a North American tour, so it was in Atlanta. I mean, I, it could have been uh, this, uh, the country of Georgia, too. Who knows? I mean, they do all those world tours as well. Yeah, they're a big international band. Yep. Alex is right to identify there that oftentimes these joining these fan clubs is free, at least on its surface. So obviously cost would play into this. Uh, now, of course, next thing you know, uh, now this band has your data. And just like we talked about yesterday on the show, it's not so much what they might use your data for. It's when they invariably get hacked. And now all your personal information goes to some kind of hacker. Let's go over to Eliza Rocco. Eliza, have you, would you, would you join a band's fan club to get early access for tickets, merchandise, etc.? Well, I am uh, already a part of Far, far too many fan clubs. Um, I can't, like, I wouldn't be able to count them. It's it's kind of ridiculous at this point. But I'm only a part of fan clubs that actually give me something. Mm -hmm. Because I have noticed some of them are just like, oh, um, you're, the, your artist did this today. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I want the pre, I want the pre-sale code. Give me, I want give me the goodies. Give me the goodies. Something. Like, you got to give me something. Um, so... There's most bands I subscribe to do give me something. There was one artist in particular, an artist that Grace and I quite like a lot. I signed up for their fan L club. Let me guess, Harry Styles. <laughs> you got it. There we you go. Got it. Surprise, surprise. I signed up for their fan club years ago, years ago. And when their newest tour came up, um, they I got an email saying like, oh, all the all the fans in the fan club will get a pre-sale code. And I was like, yes, perfect. I really want to go. What I did not realize in the small print is that random fans will be given the pre-sale oh, code. Oh, come on. I've been a fan. I've been on this fan club for years. Does loyalty mean nothing to them, Dave? <laughs> I was a fan of One Direction when they were no direction. <laughs> exactly. I was a fan before the one even got added. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I, I had to unsubscribe from that fan club okay. because I was very upset about okay. it. Okay, I'm sorry maybe that I mentioned him by name because it sounds like perhaps <laughs> perhaps the the beef runs deep and you didn't want to give bit. you didn't want to give them any kind of love on the air today. I, I will uh, I will probably resubscribe at some point. <laughs> next album but uh, 
for now, they're not, they're not getting my email. For now, the point is taken. Harry Styles, take that. <laughs> Eliza, thank you for this. That's Eliza Rocco. We'll talk to her a little bit later in the show. In the meantime, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And you can catch up with Alex Smythe, who has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. So yesterday there was a lot of percentage and chances of rain. Different story today. Most of that moisture is gone and it's leading to cloudy and sunny skies. So let's start in St. John's, Newfoundland. There is rain this morning, but that's going to be turning to cloudy in the afternoon and it will become a high of 14. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 17. In Montreal, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well, and a high of 15. Ottawa, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 13. Over to Toronto, Ontario, there was frost this morning, but it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 15. Over to Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 14. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny with 14 being the high. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds as well, with 12 being the high. Calgary, Alberta, it's cloudy with possible showers and a high of eight. Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy and possible showers as well, but the high is 10. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's cloudy with a chance of snow flurries this morning, but then becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of negative two. In Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with rain off and on today, and there is still the special air quality uh, statement in effect due to smoke in the area. The high is 11. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy with rain beginning late this morning and a high of 10. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, the news panel will take a look at some of the findings from the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. We have Alex Smythe pinch-hitting for Michelle McQuig today and Joita Gupta hanging out down the hall. So we're kicking that off in just a couple of minutes. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday, which means that it's news panel time, which means that we get to bring in Joita Gupta. Good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. And pinch hitting for Michelle McQuig is Alex Smythe. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Alex. <laughs> you, you got yourself there, Dave. Instincts. Instincts. <laughs> it's, 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 well, it's, it's like how I kept calling the daily polls at AMI Audio for a good six That's weeks after fair. we switched branding. It's just brain memory and muscle memory in my mind. Guys, let's start here. Let's highlight some of what we learned this week at the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. Ontario Provincial Police Superintendent Pat Morris says his force was prepared for a long protest. We were positioning ourselves to be prepared for a longer term. I don't know that I had a specific idea in mind, but we were even beginning to schedule and plan at that time for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, a month. It appears to be a different story at the city level. Ottawa City Manager Steve Kanellakis says city staff were relying on information from local police about the scale of the protest. 
it wasn't unusual to have a variance in the views of people who thought it was going to be bigger, longer, smaller. There were all kinds of opinions on what that would be. The only information we could rely on was the Ottawa Police in terms of reliable information at that time. Ottawa City Councillor and former chair of the police board, Diane Deans, reflected on how the protests threw the city's police leadership and city hall into chaos. And then there was what I would describe as some sort of insurrection from within that was happening. Deans testified that Ottawa's former police chief was not prepared for a long protest. He said to me, what are you so worried about? And I, I, I told him just what I told you, the, the number of tracks, the size of those tracks, the amount of money that they have. And, and he, he said that he would be surprised if they were still here on Monday. Deans also described some political tensions at all levels of government that may have slowed the response. Ottawa's acting deputy chief, Patricia Ferguson, says in hindsight, she would have given more credibility to early warnings from the OPP and other intelligence suggesting protesters did plan to stay for weeks. We had a period after that first weekend where I say we were orienting ourselves. I think we were floundering a little bit in terms of our staffing, in terms of our ability to to really take stock of what was going on and, and, and then move forward and, and come up with a plan to get out of it. And I think we lost some time there. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson acknowledged that the city did ask other levels of government for extra police assistance. We needed the large number of 1,800 to get this situation under control and kick these yahoos out of our city who were disrupting the quality of life of the people of Ottawa. So, you know, at the end of the day, uh, fast forward, we got what we wanted, and we appreciate the federal government, the provincial government's support. We wanted it sooner because this thing should not have lasted three weeks. That's a sampling of sound from the hearings this week, but there's also been a disclosure of a number of documents showing some emails and text messages amongst various levels of politicians who were clearly struggling to get on the same page to understand a robust plan. Joita, I want to start with you here. Has anything in particular caught your attention during the inquiry this week? It's been hard to look away from it, Dave, and I think there's a number of things that caught my attention, just starting out with the fact that, as we highlighted in the clips, it seems like the OPP thought this was going to be a longer occupation, and that's what they were prepared for. But the Ottawa police didn't seem to be on the same page. As you heard, they thought, you know, it'll be gone by Monday. And it's very unclear to me, and I have questions about who shared what intelligence with whom. It seems as though the OPP endeavored to share its intelligence, but uh, then the Ottawa police turned around and seemed to be asking for the very same information. So I'm not sure what happened there, whether it got lost in transit or if there was some form of miscommunication. There is a lot of personal rancor and internal politics and interpersonal disputes that have marred the response uh, between, you know, different levels of government, uh, the Ottawa police force and the chief of police and the police board and the mayor. It just seems like there are so many interpersonal issues that have cropped up that the whole thing really got me wondering, and maybe this is just a, a testament to my naivety, but I honestly thought that we would have had a game plan in place, that somewhere, somehow, there would have been a, you know, a plan to deal with a protest at this, of this magnitude right at Parliament Hill, and yet it seems like they were making it up as they went along. And I have to tell you, the 
the lack of a plan or the lack of a coordinated strategy, which I had honestly assumed had always been in place, you know, between the different levels of government, different uh, police forces, who's going to be doing what. Mm -hmm. The fact that that apparently doesn't exist came as quite a surprise to me. The other thing that um, I, I would be interested in looking at, and it sort of jumped out at me, I think there perhaps isn't enough scrutiny being paid to the role of the provincial government or the lack of the role of the provincial government. Uh, it, it, it At the time, the city of Ottawa requested additional resources and tougher laws uh, from uh, the province, but not only was Doug Ford conspicuously absent, although now, of course, he says he supports the Emergency Act, but not only was Doug Ford conspicuously absent at the time, but all of those appeals went nowhere. So mm. there's so many things to unravel here, Dave. But the ta- the key takeaway for me is I really honestly thought there had always been a plan to deal with something like this, and evidently there was not. It, I agree with you, Julia. It's been hard to look away this week. And to your point about the Ontario Premier, there were some documents that were released here where the expression, he's in hiding He's in hiding from the meetings that we need him at were released this week in in documentation from the Prime Minister's office. So definitely that was something that has come to light this week. Some of that transparency has been interesting. That's a little bit harder to report on for us on the day-to-day on the show. I highly recommend the work the Globe and Mail is doing in terms of investigating some of those documentations a little more clearly. We're we're doing a lot of the sharing of sound of testimony. It hasn't necessarily stunned me this week. None of this information isn't necessarily something that I didn't already have a sense of or didn't have a sense of. knowing, but it really seems like they're painting a foundational picture this week of saying, let's understand what the situation on the ground was. Let's look at what the reaction of the police forces in real time was. The reason why I played that sound from the mayor of Ottawa is because that's the ultimate question. Who asked for the Emergencies Act? Did they ask for it by name? And was that appropriate? That's ultimately the question that Mm -hmm. Justice Paul Rouleau is tasked with answering. But you can't answer that question without at least establishing the facts and the chain of command for the three weeks before it was declared. Alex, what about you? Anything from this week's testimony stand out to you? You know, I I agree with what you're saying, Dave, because to me, a lot of it didn't surprise me because when this protest first was happening, I mean, we all heard about it in the news and in in media reports leading up to the protest. Like there there was, you know, a a clear understanding, oh, this trucker convoy is going to Ottawa and and the, the number of trucks and we saw the size of them. They were all making their way there. So the fact that the public knew and, and yet the Ottawa police force seemingly disregarded any information that apparently the OPP was sharing on uh, with them on intelligence, on on information that was just being disregarded, being ignored. And I think I agree with Juwita in the fact that you, you kind of always figure that there's some sort of plan, especially if Ottawa of all cities would have some sort of protest plan, contingency uh, kind of uh, policy in place that they can enact when when the time comes. But as you mentioned, you're, the inquiry kind of lays a, a foundational uh, standard and you're putting brick by brick as we build up towards eventually what the, the role of the federal government who's called for the Emergencies Act uh, to be enacted. I think it's very important. We're getting the, the local city level. We're clearly seeing there was the infighting, there was these relationships, there were people disregarding information, people viewing the protest as going to be something far bigger than what others were seeing. But I agree with Joita as well in the fact that we really need to kind of find out what 
the provincial government was doing, what the Ford government was doing. We heard he, Doug Ford was in hiding. This is kind of part of the ideological and political differences between the three levels of government that are in uh, that have jurisdiction in Ottawa. You know, you you have the local municipal government. You've got a conservative provincial government who were trying to thread this fine line with vaccine requirements, with supporting, you know, uh, some of the parties supporting freedoms and uh, the freedom movement and a lack of restrictions. And then you got the federal government who is enacting this uh, vaccine mandate, which was the the guise of this whole uh, uh, convoy. So it's going to be very interesting if we do start to unravel this a bit more and start to hear from the provincial government, start to see some more of these documents that are getting shared, getting leaked, and getting more information from there. Justice Rouleau obviously is going to come out with some recommendations. I am curious about where he lands on the question of jurisdiction. As we pointed out a few times on this show during the protests, within two kilometers of those protests, there are five different police forces that have various jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. You have the parliamentary police, you have the RCMP, you have the OPP on the highway, you have the Quebec police on the Quebec side of the bridge, and you have the Ottawa local police as well. So that's five jurisdictions within two kilometers. That is something that I wonder if we might move towards more of a Washington model uh, where you have a capital police force that sort of runs a green zone or a red zone across two provinces. And I'm sure Quebec is super happy about that, about that concept. Um, but I, th- that's going to be one of the questions in the report and the recommendations is how much of this is actually a question of having too many jurisdictions in too small a radius. Uh, Joita, Michelle McQuig posed us a great question in an email here, and I wanted to keep it. What do you make of the assertion that political tensions fuel the slower response, whether it be uh, infighting at Ottawa City Hall, an alleged beef between Ottawa's former police chief, Peter Slowly, and Mm -hmm. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair? Uh, There was all kinds of beef, all kinds of dirty laundry being (laughs) shared this week. Yes, no, for sure. You know, I I will go out on a limb and say this is a textbook example of political backpassing and warnings not being heeded. All of this aided and abetted by a slew of interpersonal conflicts Uh, to the point where the Ottawa police was so hampered by infighting that they weren't even able to effectively mobilize. I think a lot of questions will be asked about the Ottawa police response It has since come out that there has been considerable infighting between the police chief in Ottawa and uh, officers. Uh, You know, you heard from Diane Deans, who subsequently said that there was a a concerted effort to undermine the police chief in Ottawa during the crisis just to kind of make them look bad. And so to answer your question, did the political rancoring and the interpersonal conflicts play a part here? I think it's self-evident to say that, yes, absolutely 100 percent the infighting and the the personal disagreements definitely slowed down the response because it is so clear that with all the, and you did a great job of laying out the different jurisdictions and the various players, it is so clear that they just were not able to get on the same page, even though these protests effectively ground to a halt life in Ottawa and made life very difficult for ordinary people. And so there are a number of things that I wanted to pick up on. The first thing, uh, just to sort of piggyback off of what you were saying, this is all happening near Parliament Hill, but uh, the RCMP actually has no jurisdiction. So, you know, the the federal government couldn't just turn to the RCMP and say, hey, can you go sort this out? What they ended up 
doing well, was... Juita, can I pause you for one second? Mm-hmm. When I mentioned the two-kilometer radius, it's the parkways, the national mm-hmm. parkways that exist in Ottawa around Parliament Hill. The RCMP does have jurisdiction there. Right. But I think a lot of it also came down to the fact that they were trying to sort of indirectly, and I mean, you know, they don't it influence Ottawa police in this situation. But of course, that relies... Uh, in that requires some buy-in from the provincial government, which I think we've sort of already talked about. Didn't they didn't really show up at the table, and so, you know, it it, it I think I like what you said, and I would echo the sentiment that I think one of the things that's going to come out of this inquiry is trying to iron out some of those jurisdic- jurisdictional tangles and figure out who's actually responsible for policing in this area. Um, and I think that's going to be a, a big takeaway from this. Uh, because it, it, it became very clear that there wasn't a clear line of control. And it just, um, it just like, I, I think there's been a lot of criticism of the Ottawa police in saying that they just didn't take the protesters seriously. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is uh, because Slowly, uh had been deputy chief of police in Toronto uh, in 2010, during the G20 protests. And um, that had been an instance where the police was heavily criticized for over-policing and Mm -hmm. rounding up protesters. So I think in this instance, maybe he didn't want a repeat performance. And so maybe the the reaction from Ottawa police might have been underwhelming in the situation, uh, which definitely contributed above and over, I think, some of the interpersonal issues that we've talked about already. Alex, what do you make of the assertion that political conflict is what slowed an effective response? I, I think it certainly played a part, you know, because it's it's one of those things that we were talking about earlier about the, the flow of information, the the effective communications, especially when it comes through the different levels of government. You, This was a, a situation that you needed a unified force and uh, approach to how to deal with this. But we quickly saw this was, no one really had a clear view of how do we effectively address this situation? How do we deal with this protest and how do we do it from a unified front and and tackle it from uh, every different uh, uh, way? In order, and when we start uh, hearing about some of these, oh, the strife between, you know, uh, the uh, uh, Bill Blair and, and, uh, the local uh, Peter slowly, it, it just, Peter slowly, uh, Peter slowly. Yes, the uh, police chief, and and then uh, between uh, the mayor and 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 deans, it, it's it really think you you start to think it's like, wouldn't you hope that when you're you're faced with an issue, you know, you can put aside those office politics essentially, what which is what this is, and and these personal grudges to be like, oh, there's a bigger issue at play. We we can deal with our personal grudges, our personal vendettas, our our issues with one another. Once we deal with this, because this isn't just about us anymore. This is about the public. This is about showing a strong unified front for dealing uh, with with issues that affect our our government. I mean, you want to be present yourself as an effective uh, um, leader in in government and in in policing. Well, that's not how you do it when you don't really step up to the plate when the need arises. I want to be a little quick with this last question in this segment, guys, because we are already up against it. It happens very, very quickly on this show. It's amazing once we start having these conversations, we end up against it. I want to talk about the potential fallout for the federal government here. I don't think anything that came out this week was particularly damaging. But fundamentally, the question is going to be, was the use of the Emergencies Act appropriate? Was stripping people of their civil liberties pretty much willy-nilly an appropriate use? Was that the appropriate action? 
question. I think when we get clearer questions about that, that's when we can really start talking about potential fallout for the federal government and the way that people perceive this. And that might not even be during the testimony. That may be when when Justice Rouleau put out, puts out his final report in a couple of months. But, Joita, as we sit here today, and again, try to keep this a bit brief for us, what do you imagine some of the fallout could be here? I don't think there's a clear exoneration of the federal government. I think I'll start by saying that. But beyond that, uh, I think you've pretty much nailed it. It's not clear at this point. We don't know enough. Uh, And I think it's going to be one of those situations where those who had been opposed to the Emergencies Act will have said that the government overreached and those who were in favor of the use of the Emergencies Act and (laughs) felt it was appropriate (laughs) will find things in this inquiry to back up their point Mm -hmm. of view. So that's Mm -hmm. why I think we're going to have to leave it. Yeah, their their minds may already be made up on this one. People may have already picked their camp on this. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, so I I think it's going to come out that the federal government uh, were not justified in using the Emergencies Act. But I think what the federal government is going to point to is the fact that there was this infighting, there was this lack of cohesion, and, and they couldn't rely on the other levels of government and policing to to deal with this this issue, this conflict. So I think that's going to be their defense, but I, I still think it's going to come out that it was not needed in this situation. I think we're still pretty much looking ahead to federal ministers popping on the stands and uh, being examined and questioned and cross-examined. That's when I think we'll really start to get to the crux of where the federal story lays. But thank you both for exploring this with me. I have a sneaking suspicion between now and the end of November. We'll end up revisiting this one again. And I'm going to keep playing sound pretty much every day on the show, providing it keeps popping up for me to share with you. Coming up next, federal MPs have unanimously passed a motion to investigate grocery chain greedflation amidst record profits at the grocery chains. We'll fill the basket with our thoughts. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Alex Smythe and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic, an NDP motion calling on the federal government to tackle to take steps to tackle greedflation and investigate grocery chain profits received unanimous support from MPs on Monday. The non-binding motion calls on the Liberals to close certain tax loopholes, launch an affordable and fair food strategy, ask the Competition Bureau to investigate grocery chain profits, and support a previously agreed-upon House committee study calling on grocery CEOs to testify about high food prices and the role of greedflation. Joita, this topic jumped out to you. What angles interest you? If it was impossible to look away from the the inquiry that we talked about in the the previous segment, I would say this story has been another one that has dominated the headlines, at least in the last week, if not well before then, because we've seen that grocery prices have gone up and they have roared ahead in terms of the increase to groceries far outstripping inflation Mm -hmm. now. And so it is your quintessential kitchen table issue. And so I am curious about whether in red flagging greedflation, the NDP is onto something here, or if it's a way to play politics with an issue and a way to pander to their base and say, hey, we're still looking out for the little guy and we are taking aim at big business because they're gouging. But I don't know if there's really 
a lot of evidence to back up greedflation. It is actually one of the things I'm very curious about. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people on both sides of the debate say, yes, there is. No, there isn't. Uh, but the other thing that really jumped out at me was this affordable and fair food strategy. I haven't seen a lot of details around it, but I think we've had long conversations about food deserts and food insecurity. So I think some sort of a a national, a federal strategy around food would not go amiss in this situation. And so um, lots of angles to explore, but definitely would like to start by talking about whether the NDP was onto something. Yeah, let's start with the politics. Certainly this is one that received unanimous support because it's an easy political win, especially because it's non-binding. You don't actually have to do anything, but it does it does appear that the liberal government will at least enact some of this. So it's good politics. It's very good politics. People are definitely concerned about the rising cost of food. You mentioned it, Joita. Even as inflation year over year ticked down towards 6.9% this week by StatsCan numbers, the price of groceries was at 11.4%. So still seeing a significant, significant increase in the cost of food. And there's certainly some prongs to this that make some sense. Alex, what do you think? Is the NDP onto something here? Yeah, you know, I think they are because it's, if nothing else, and we talked about, is this just the, you know, the politics of, uh, of trying to raise an issue that is important to Canadians right now, you know, it, it really puts a focus on what people are talking about. Uh, during the summer months, it was really the gas prices was uh, was kind of the big thing. Now we're talking about groceries. We're talking about the price constantly going up. I mean, we just literally had um, a Loblaws uh, CEO, Galen Weston, come out and say, oh, we're, we're freezing grocery prices, you know, so this is all top of mind, whether or not this is connected with the, the NDP's call for uh, investigation into greedflation is is something that uh, remains to be seen. But I I think that there is definitely a lot that we can explore within the the cost of groceries and how they are being determined. And especially because you have so many different brands have different tiers of of grocery stores. I mean, uh, taking Loblaws for instance, you have the standard Loblaws store, but then you also have the no name uh, of brands. It's like okay, well, there's two different price structures, two different models within the same company well maybe is there some way that we can start to look at a a model where you know we start to narrow in on these these more affordable brands these no-name brands things like that these health brands to try to bring down inflation and the price of those foods because everybody needs food it's a it's a need for every single canadian out there and when you can't afford food it becomes far more strenuous on the food bank system on on all these other services that are available for for those in need, but it, it, I think it becomes infringement on the government to try to figure out some sort of solution, whether it is the uh, coming up with a a strategy, whether it is at least looking into how the food prices are being determined, how the, how they're being regulated within those markets. We already regulate the types of food that can come in that can be sold. The, uh, we uh, have the Canadian Food Inspections Agency. So maybe there's something more that can be done on that side of the government branch that already exists to just ensure that pricing is included and it's not 
up to the grocers to to decide how much they pay, they charge. So along those lines, there are three parent corporations that control over 60% of the Canadian grocery market. That mm-hmm. would be Loblaws Corporation, that would be Metro, and that would be Empire. That doesn't even factor in brands like Walmart, Costco. I think once you factor them in, you'd probably be looking at over 80% of the market, the grocery market controlled by those five parent companies. So it does speak to an importance of investigating and understanding, is there coordination here? What's the collaboration? Is there any kind of cross-company strategy? We certainly saw the bread price fixing Mm -hmm. issue a couple of years ago. We saw the very coincidental changing of of hero pay during the pandemic for uh, minimum wage employees, and it all seemed to end right around the same time across grocery chains. So there clearly appears to be some level of communication here in a very small group of companies that control a huge portion of the market. So it's fair to say the government should be keeping tabs on this. I don't know how far they should end up going in developing a strategy, but Joita, what do you make of the government's role here in regards to food security, cost of food, as it does appear that we are entering some rocky mm-hmm. economic times ahead? It's, it's unclear how rocky they will be, but it does appear that we're going through something of a difficult economic time here. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just want to pick up on that. I mean, I think there's a sense where there's smoke, there's fire. You've got these three major grocery chains, and you very astutely pointed out the bread uh, and the price fixing uh, issue that came up and uh, you know a couple of years back and yet um, I have to say in speaking to a couple of economists about this they do point out that according to them there's really very little evidence of greedflation uh, their perspective is that the um, that the hype in the price of food is due to supply chain issues the war in Ukraine and till very recently the price of gas and so I think it becomes important to recognize that while uh, looking at any form of corporate uh, malfeasance uh, is a component of this part of it could just be that the price of food has gone up because of all of the things that I talked to you about, which is the war in Ukraine mm-hmm. and the supply chain mm-hmm. issues. And so is it difficult for people right now? Absolutely. But if these problems are temporary and if the Bank of Canada is doing something to rein in inflation by adjusting the interest rates, which they've been doing uh, you know, for several months now, then one of the things that may end up happening is the price of food will go down if things settle down in Ukraine, if they manage to lower the inflation rate more. So that might be one way to look at it. But um, I, I just I want to pick up on this idea about um, the one of the things that the NDP is saying is that they'd have to sort of empower the con- the competition bureau to investigate this. And I'm not sure that the con- that the Competition Bureau hasn't been investigating it mm-hmm. or, you know, if it mm-hmm. hasn't really come up. I-, I have no way of knowing one way or the other, but the reason the Competition Bureau exists is precisely to prevent the sort of thing from happening. Uh, but, again, you ask what are some of the things that the government, uh, what are some of the things the government can do? I would say we can rankle about what actually brought this about, but it's clear to me that low-income Canadians are suffering. So that's really why the government needs mm-hmm. to target support. Mm-hmm. And so if you're on social assistance, now would be a good time to roll out an additional diet benefit or supplement. 
Uh, maybe you want to give people a bigger HST benefit so that they have a bit more disposable income. In the past, the government has brought in some price controls. Now, economists hate when you say price controls. <laughs> you know, they, they, they just they loathe that. But I no, think we the need, free market. Oh, we need no, the free the, market. We, we free can market. only have the free market except when the private companies need some protection <laughs> from the free market. Then we don't need it anymore. Then we don't need it anymore. But I think uh, some limited price protections, especially around the kinds of things that we can't do without... There's a really great article about vegetable oil or any other type of oil. If that bottle of oil goes from 8 bucks to $12, you're just going to have to pay the extra cost. So bringing in some limited uh, price protection may not be such a bad idea. And also, uh, I talked to you about sort of giving people a heftier HST check. Maybe we should just, I don't know, here's a radical idea, remove HST from a handful of products, at mm. least temporarily. Mm. So there are things the government can do in the here and now. They do have some fiscal tools at their disposal. But really where, you know, if I were at the policy table, I'd say, you know what, we can sit here and quibble about what brought this about, but we really need to target support right now to low-income parents to pick up on Alex's really astute observation about food banks and who it is that actually ends up using food banks. And food banks have been taxed even before the present crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really well put by uh, by both of you on that front in, in regards to solution. I actually wonder at what point we can start creating some food security uh, plans as well, maybe either encouraging uh, a lot of sort of sustainable, self-sustaining opportunities for people to have community gardens. These are all Band-Aid solutions, but maybe even trying to increase incentives for people to be developing local Canadian farms. Just little things to start easing some of those supply chain issues. There's only so much we can do with our current climate in regards to what we can grow and how we can grow it and how we can develop it. And you have to be very careful because there are environmental impacts that go along with farming. But I do think there could be some food independence that we could create domestically that could go a long way. One more quick thing to add, and also food waste is a big one. Mm. We throw out a lot of apples because they aren't perfect, and there are now lots of small businesses cropping up. I know of a great one in the GTA. I don't want to say their name because I don't want to advertise nah, on air. give them an advertisement. I, I don't remember the name. That's oh, okay. the other thing. Okay, no. okay. <laughs> you know, uh, but um, the, what they're doing is basically gathering up all these ugly fruit and vegetables and selling them at a discount, and people love it. You're, you know, you're buying affordable food, but you're also, and the food is perfectly nutritious, but the reason it doesn't end up on your grocery shelf is maybe just because it doesn't look as good. So Mm. food waste is a big issue. And I think we would save a lot of money and really address food security in a meaningful way if we tackle the waste issue. As with so many complicated issues, there's multi prongs in the solution. There's no silver bullet for sure. Let's end on a personal question here, guys. I'm someone who on the show has talked about my love of generic brands. I typically will get generic brands from a couple different stores because oftentimes it is the name brand stuff just in a different container because of economies of scale. The the major brands are very willing to wrap something yellow or put a different uh, brand on a can to uh, make sure they're getting economies of scale and selling their prices. So I love me some generic brands. So the way in which inflation has hit me at the grocery store, thanks to some privilege, but also due to some already frugal grocery shopping, hasn't changed my habits too, too much. But what about you, Alex? Yeah, you know, I there are certain things that we now look at when whenever I'm going grocery shopping and uh, with my family going grocery shopping. And it we're in a similar uh, situation, David, as you mentioned, it's like you have to understand there's the privilege, you know, we can afford to pay more at the grocery store. So um, it, it becomes more of searching out those deals, going through multiple grocery stores sometimes just because, oh, uh, the, uh, the Metro has a great deal on 
uh, apples opposed to, you know, the, the no frills or, or to Loblaws, things like that. So that becomes a bit more of the routine. Um, so in, in that regard, I guess that's really kind of how things have changed a bit, that it's like you, you have to be more attentive when you're shopping, whereas when I'm just on my own, I'm going to the grocery store that's nearest to me, and I'm going to have to pick up whatever the, the food I need because I... I can't travel that easily going grocery store to grocery store, especially if you have uh, limited mobility or you don't have access to reliable transportation. So I think in those situations, it becomes far harder, especially when you have a more premium grocery store as your, your go-to place. Joita, what about you? Any habits in regards to the way you've shopped as prices have gone up? I mostly go to the farmer's market, and I have been, partly because I don't want to um, shortchange the vendors with whom I have a relationship, pretty much been buying what I've always been buying. Where I've cut back is some of the frills. Oh, Wow, homemade pesto. Do I really need that? <laughs> uh, you know, so so I that's... Mean, yes, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. But can I make the pesto at home and have it actually be homemade as opposed to buying a can? So that's where I've cut back a little bit. Uh, but I generally try not to cut back on food. And I try to buy what I've been buying with the exception of anything that's a bit processed or, you know, but I haven't... I don't really do a lot of conventional grocery shopping. Mm. I think my husband, I generally pack him off. The the metro stresses me out. Oh, my uh, gosh, yes. So, <laughs> so you should be, you're better off asking him if he's been economizing. But at the farmer's market, I've generally been just sticking to what I've been buying. Mm, I miss living with my roommates who were old far, who were farmer's market folks. I used to roll in with them because uh, they were very good at the farmer's market, whereas I'm very bad at the farmer's market. I get overwhelmed. See, you get overwhelmed at the metro. I get overwhelmed at the farmer's market. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing there. Uh, guys, we got to get out of here because... We're only going to have a couple minutes for our next segment, but we will talk about one of two people running for the BC NDP leadership race. Well, they got disqualified, and now we have a premier who, well, a leader of a party who is destined to be premier at an unknown time. We'll discuss the political drama. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Alex Smythe. We've got one more topic on deck. A report from BC's New Democratic Party says leadership hopeful Anjali Apatarai should be disqualified from the race. And she was. The party alleges that Apatarai violated campaign rules by using third parties to recruit new party members. Apatarai denies any wrongdoing. We followed the rules. And so the party had a choice. Let all the members of the party, new and old, choose the next leader and risk having a climate champion in the premier's seat or take this undemocratic approach and disqualify the candidate. It's distressing that they have taken the nuclear option. Former Provincial Attorney General David Eby is now unopposed to replace outgoing Premier John Horgan. He's expected to be appointed as party leader today as to when he will become the premier. That's up for debate. Originally, December the 3rd was the target date. Now that's all up in flux. Guys, we literally have two minutes and 30 seconds on the clock. So I need a quick reaction to this one. 
Joita, is this perhaps an example where politics is too rigid? I'm sure the bylaws to this leadership race were very clear, but the barrier, barrier to entry seems quite stiff. That depends on who you talk to. Uh, there are certainly supporters who have said that this was anti-democratic and overly punitive or the quote-unquote nuclear option, as you heard there. But there are other people who are saying that this was a violation of, camp of, of party rules because the Dogwood Institute apparently endorsed her and then got its members to uh, join the NDP in order to vote for her. And so this might not only run afoul of the party's rules, but also election BC rules uh, where, you can, where this might have been seen as an in-kind endorsement from an organization. So it's not clear what happened. I mean, I'm sure when the dust will settle, we'll get some analysis on whether this was a rigid application because it ran foul of the party's rules and regulations in the Elections Act, or was it a rigid, rigid you know, application of the rules because they wanted to uh, remove somebody who was challenging the establishment within the NDP or the conventional wisdom of the party because she is a staunch environmentalist and has been quite critical of the government's in, uh, track record on climate. Alex, give me 30 seconds. Too rigid political barrier to entry? Uh, not really in my my estimation because the thing is, ultimately, the the main public, you're voting for your representative and, and you, you vote for the party and their representative. You're, you're not voting for the leader, uh, especially when it comes to uh, uh, premier uh, races, uh, provincial races, federal races. So I, I think ultimately let the party put forward who they believe it is. If they want to disqualify people because they, they don't like how they brought in new members that they it, it violated their rules, that that's ultimately up for them to decide and uh, the public will, will have their vote when there is a, a provincial election next time around. Joita, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful Pulse recording in a couple of moments. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. That's Joita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And Alex Smythe, of course, is a contributor here on Now with Dave Brown. Coming up after the break, we have the regional news update, and Brock Richardson will stop by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, October the 21st, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Michael McNeely will offer up his thoughts on the Superfest Disability Film Festival. And then we wrap up the show and wrap up the week when we talk to Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Act. Let's begin the hour with the regional news update. A spokesman for the Vancouver Police Department says officers have become de facto social workers for people struggling with homelessness, mental health issues, and substance use. Sergeant Steve Addison says Tuesday's stabbing death of RCMP Constable Shailene Yang is in Burnaby highlights the danger that police face when dealing with risky calls. We're seeing people who are living with this, a constellation of very complex social issues that are not only making them unsafe, but making other people unsafe. Uh, it's a problem that we've been talking about for a long time. It's a problem that's putting vulnerable people in danger, and it's a problem that's putting the community in danger. As people have been talking about the fallout from the death of George Floyd years ago, the expression defund the police was tossed around. 
and it was talked about really disingenuously by a lot of people and continues to be talked about disingenuously by a lot of people. But what you just heard Sergeant Addison say is the crux of the argument behind defund the police. Move adequate social resources to serve people who are vulnerable and high risk because police are not social workers. Sergeant Addison, advocating for defund the police right there, right there in audio clip. I don't think he had that in mind when he started speaking. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told the House of Commons this week that mental health supports need to be stepped up so police are not sole providers of such outreach in many situations. Let's head over to the prairies, where Alberta Premier Danielle Smith plans to change the Human Rights Act to outlaw discrimination based on COVID-19 vaccine status. Smith feels this will benefit the provincial economy. We want to send the message to the community and to the world community and to the investment markets that this is a place that is open for business, that this is a place that believes in freedom. This is a place that believes in free enterprise. Smith also discussed her goal of overhauling the health care system. I know that it's perilous to try to contact or to, to, to try to reform an area this big, this close to an election, but we must do it. Let's head over to Ontario, where Ontario parents with school-aged children can apply for government payments of up to $200 per child or $250 for kids with special education needs. Education Minister Stephen Lecce feels this could help some kids catch up. We all know how challenging COVID was on people across the province, but it impacted nearly every part of our lives, but few people felt those impacts more than Ontario students. Parents do not have to prove how the money will be used. And then over to Atlantic Canada, the New Brunswick government says it will spend $8 million over the next three years to support emergency shelters for people experiencing homelessness. It says funding to shelters will be based on service provided, such as the provision of meals and community space and the acuity level of residents and hours of operation. Acuity level. Like, does that mean just the number of people you can have? Sorry, I ripped this copy straight up, uh, (laughs) straight off the wire. Plain English, people. You want to know why people distrust the media? Because you use expressions like acuity level of residence. Get out of here. The number of residents you can hold and the hours of operation. The government says shelters must also have plans to in place to increase the number of beds available during extreme weather. The province has nine emergency shelters that have 274 beds, while the number of people experiencing homelessness is over 500. That's your look at the regional news with a little bit of media criticism baked into it. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock You and I had an email chain going. We need to a little bit throw out the format here because there's some breaking news this morning about the Toronto Blue Jays. The manager, John Schneider, no longer the interim tag. He just got offered an extension. Your reaction? Yes, he did. It's uh, three years and then a club option for the fourth, which means he could be here up until 2026. I'm not really shocked by this. I think uh, taking... One, Kelly McDonald's thoughts on John Snyder. If anyone can get through uh, to this this team, it is John Snyder, as he was with the vast majority of this team for a long time in the minor leagues. I think he has a great style as a manager. 
I think he's a bit of a, um, you know, a hard guy sometimes, but he can also be a bit of a player's coach at the same time. And I think it's a good mix. I like this. Uh, I I think they gave some time to think about it, but I ultimately think they made the right decision in this case. He was part of a huge stabilization this year when things were a little bit chaotic with the team. He was brought in and proved his merits, got the team into a playoff spot, bit of a heartbreaking exit, but he earned the right to go shepherd this team for a few more years and see where they end up. I, I think that's going to be the thing we'll see with the Blue Jays this offseason is a lot of status quo, maybe a little tinkering on the fringes. There are some fans who are calling for some big changes. I doubt we're going to see the big changes just yet. I sense one more year of status quo before any kind of significant overhaul takes place. Remember, his winning percentage was uh, around the a little over 600. And if we, you know, did that uh, over the whole season, we would have won the American League East. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy. It's easy to play numbers, and I'm not saying that he's going to have that same effect throughout all year, but give him that opportunity. And I'm not sure that I agree with the, some fans that say, you know, let him run it back one year. No, I think you have to you have to implement your ways and your things and develop a culture and a culture doesn't just happen in one year it happens over time so mm-hmm. i like this deal and i even like the club option at the end of the, yeah. the third one let's let's evaluate reasonable it. okay. it's reasonable it's a reasonable deal we like reasonable here we're reasonable people brock while we're talking about coaching you sent me such a good question earlier this week because we are sometimes accused of being armchair quarterbacks or armchair coaches but what if we were to put our money where our mouth was you are asking the question what professional sport would you coach if given the opportunity so what say you what say me and I say a little bit of this in jest because I always thought it was hilarious. I love uh, NBA. Um, it's it's fast paced. It's a lot of things happen very quickly. Uh, I always got a kick out of uh, Nick Nurse who would and other NBA coaches during COVID when you'd have to uh, quote unquote have a mask on while you communicate. And as soon as a bad call would happen. He would rip down his mask and completely yell in the referee's <laughs> face. Uh, that is something that I would, you know, beyond COVID, I would love to just yell about a bad call <laughs> from time to time. And, you know, it's uh, I, I'm not so sure I'd enjoy, you know, spitting in someone's face in general. But overall, I, I would enjoy the odd, you know, kibitz with an official. And, uh, yeah, that would be my choice as uh, coach. So f- Brock, purely from a practical point of view, considering my vision level and my actual capacity to make very fast adjustments, I think baseball's the sport that I would actually thrive at as a coach because a lot of stuff can be, choices can be made very mechanically. Yes, there are real-time choices to take that can sort of need to happen inside 30 seconds, but I can work inside those tight windows. And there's something about it that works for me. Oh, you got to bring in the lefty. Oh, we got to pinch hit this guy. Are we stealing here? Let's go for a steal. So I think there's something about baseball that would really work for me. And so much of the work from individual players at a skill point of view is done with skill coaches. So oftentimes it's your job just to coordinate and keep people comfy and hang out with them and slap somebody on the butt here and there and be like, good job slugger. (laughs) So I think, I think, uh, I think that I could be a really good baseball coach, but if I was really indulging in this fantasy, I have played a lot of video game football over the years. And I love it when games have 
play design features. I've designed a lot of playbooks over the years as an offensive coordinator for my team because so much of it is about conceptualization and ideology of creating space for players. I would love to be a play designer slash play caller slash offensive coordinator for a football team. I think my skill level would need to go a little bit beyond Madden and NCAA football video games, Mm. but I would say at a conceptual level, I have philosophies about offense that could apply to a professional football team. I love it. Now I want to ask you, going back to the uh, baseball manager, would you be a player's manager or would you be more of a hard butt if you uh, were a coach or would you be a combination of both? I'm a player's coach. I'm a player's coach. Yeah. I'm I'm share I'm sharing sunflower seeds. I'm slapping people on the back, giving high fives. I'm an, I'm an energy guy. I uh I wouldn't be able to lead by example. I wouldn't be able to be a, a hard-nosed dude. I'm probably a bit of a harder-nosed leader around the now with Dave Brown crew, but it's because I know precisely what I'm doing. <laughs> so I have strong opinions of how I do it. But uh, in the mm-hmm. baseball world, because I'd be more of the motivation guy, uh, I would need to be a player's coach. Now, now, would you have, if we're looking at the Toronto Blue Jays, would you have the home run jacket? Some say that they like it. Some say it's a little gimmicky. Would, would Dave Brown as manager do a, a home run celebration thing with a team? I would allow it. I would allow it. I, I like it when teams have a little bit of enthusiasm. I think, especially in a 162-game season, you have to have a little bit of fun. We saw in the football world uh, the Miami Hurricanes were doing the turnover chain a couple of years ago. Every time they would get a fumble or an interception, they would give a player a gold chain to wear around the sideline until the next series of plays. I think that kind of stuff ends up being good for the spirit. I used to work in sales, Brock. And no matter where I would work, they would always have the little thing with the bell that if you made a sale, you would slam the bell. And it always seemed like such a silly concept to me. It seemed it seemed like a really kind of waste of time and a little bit performative. But you realize after you work there for a while, having a little celebration and something that sort of uh, brings in some applause or high fives or does something that makes you feel good ends up being this positive reinforcement that can actually build a team culture. Yeah, for sure. And and I think that that's where, you know, some of the naysayers on these jackets, chains, you know, rolling them in a in a in a cart, whatever they do that. I don't think people are looking at it from the inside of walls. I think you need some, you know, high fives, some slaps on the butt, some seed shower. You need that a little bit. And, and 162 games in 182 days is a long haul. And people need to be, be, you know, encouraged and, and done and have a little bit of fun because if you're doing it all business all the time, it can get pretty hard sometimes over mm-hmm. such a long season. So. Gotta have fun. Like, sports is supposed to be fun, fundamentally. Like, fun is in the game. You're That's that's where it starts. That's where the passion begins. <laughs> and then, of course, the millions, yeah. the millions of dollars help on that one as well. Brock, let's yeah. get to a, a weekend look ahead here. I would say compared to last weekend, this weekend, not quite as exciting but still some good stuff going on now we have talked about Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa pretty much to death on the show between the two of us he's scheduled to come back from his concussion this week against the Steelers on Sunday night what are your feelings about Tua returning on Sunday um for me and and I mean this in all seriousness I'm not I'm not making a joke it's can he realistically stand up 
throw a football, be a productive player on the field. How much of the overlapping concussions are we going to see? Is he, do I expect him to be absolutely 100% you know, in, in perfect condition? No, I don't think any football player is ever 100% after week one of, of a football game season. But I think for me it's more, is he competitive? Is he um, you know, going to make the plays that he needs to make? He said he's not the savior uh, of this team. I, if he's not, I don't know who is um, because he does make this team go. And so for me, it's how does he handle the moment? Do you, do you see any residual effects of his injury? That's going to be the big question for me for Tua. Yeah, that'll be a huge point of focus on the broadcast. And there's going to be a lot of social media doctors who are going to be sharing all kinds of opinions on Sunday. I would advise people to largely uh, leave that out and leave it to the actual neurologists and actual doctors to offer comments on this. The one thing that I'm observing, Brock, is the Miami offensive line has uh, allowed injuries to all their quarterbacks. All three of their quarterbacks have dealt with injuries this year because the offensive line play has been poor. I'm wondering slash looking to see if Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel ends up adjusting his scheme a little bit to offer some more protection, an extra tight end, an extra blocking running back, pass routes that are not quite as long developing so the ball can get out quickly for Tua because that is that is fundamentally the thing here. You do not want him taking another big blindside hit or another massive crack because the PR optics are going to be an absolute disaster, let alone the actual health and safety of the player. But football is a violent, dangerous sport. We see ambulances on the field pretty much every week now. It's uh, ugly, and maybe it's a sport that I love so much that I'm having trouble turning away. But every time I see one of those ambulances and one of those stability boards, I get a little bit less enthused. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and if you don't have a quarterback, you know, a, a viable quarterback in the NFL, what do you have? You could have the greatest wide receivers, the greatest offensive line. It doesn't matter if you don't have a viable quarterback and someone doesn't get out there and stop them from you know a freight train hitting them then then what do you have yeah. we've gone through th three quarterbacks with Miami and it's just not look pretty so I I agree there's got to be some uh defensive schemes that have to look different which is where we bring in you know Dave as as uh, that's right maybe defensive coordinator and putting uh putting some plays on that would protect the quarterback Quick slants, tight ends in for production. That's the key. Uh, Brock, let's turn ahead to some action on the television screen this weekend. Tonight, the Toronto Raptors heading down to Brooklyn for a meeting with the Brooklyn Nets, an early measuring stick going up against some star power. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I'm very interested to see what happens. Um, a lot of people made a lot out of the Raptors needing the first win. They put a lot of Emphasis on, you know, making sure that they, you know, got the win, uh, starting a lot of their starting five regularly. I, I think you're going to have to see a little bit more spread out of this as the season goes on because you cannot put all your pressure on, you know, Fred Van Vliet and, and company. There's going to have to be some love uh, spread around. I'm not sure that tonight is that night either with Brooklyn and what they have going. Um, Brooklyn is an interesting team if they could put it together and put their attitudes aside, you know, uh, they, they can be a good team. So for me, this is a, this is an extreme, you know, measuring stick. Am I crying in my pillow? If the Raptors lose, no, <laughs> it's more of a, what did they look like uh, when, when they played this uh, 
game and win, lose, or draw. I really just want to see how do they measure up against a team that is going to be at the top mm. of the conference, I believe, when the season is over. Yeah, too, too, too early for cries, for, for tears on the pillow in, in, the, uh, in the season. Mm. Brock, we have two baseball series, the American League Championship Series and the National League Championship Series. One of them knotted up at 1-1 between San Diego and Philly, New York and Houston. Houston with a 2-0 lead here after a couple of games. What are you looking for this weekend in the Major League Baseball playoffs? Uh, I got to say, I'm loving this Houston um, Yankee series. I think it's it's been a wonderful series. I don't, again, necessarily believe that this is going to be a sweep. I think that, you know, for me, I subscribe to the theory that you don't lose a series until you lose at home. Well, in this case, New York, you've got three. So do you come back? You have uh, some some good pitchers coming uh, Garrett Cole is uh, mm, one of them, and the so it, you, yeah. if you if you're gonna have a chance here, you're gonna you're gonna this is gonna be uh, the situation. The other series still very good. Let's see who who uh, who takes the lead on this one. Does home field play a factor? We'll see. Philadelphia hasn't had playoffs in a very long time. Their fans are gonna be fairly jacked up and ready to go, and so looking forward to a uh, great weekend of mm. of baseball as we see. Yes, um, San Diego's been chilling at home in their own beds in California for weeks now. They've been chilling. So now they've got to head back out to the East Coast where they had some success against the Mets a few weeks ago. But Brock, as we're finding out in Southern Ontario today, old man winters begin rattling his chain. So those California sh- teams are going to have to bring some layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to talk about winter yet. I <laughs> had to put my winter. I had to put my winter. Winter tires. Well, I didn't put them on, but somebody put them on for me last, <laughs> last night, and it was. I had a. I had a. You want to talk about crying in the pillow? That was one that, of those moments. That's one of the ones that'll get you crying in the pillow through and through. Hey, Brock. I, I know we talked about football a little bit before, but you've got a couple bounce back games on your radar here. Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the Carolina Panthers, who just traded their star running back last night, Christian McCaffrey, and the Denver Broncos and the New York Jets. So, what are you looking at in terms of these bounce back candidates for the Broncos and the Buccaneers? this week um first of all what is russell wilson this is the broncos the, the, quarterback yeah yeah like what who who is this quarterback uh, for denver we don't know i don't know uh he doesn't know uh that's that that's the biggest question for me is what is the denver broncos from a quarterback perspective but as a whole team there's been things that we've seen that you just kind of go i don't I don't know what's happening here. So for me, this is a big sort of, you know, bounce back. I'm not going to say prove yourself game, but it's one of those. If you want to show who you are as a team, this is an opportunity you need to take. Tampa Bay, yeah, they lost a close game. I, I'm not that worried. I think if they lose to, you know, to Carolina. Oh, this, this oh. <laughs> if they lose to Carolina, Brock, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think that's where I, I'm going to be coming going. Remember when I said to you for two minutes that I wasn't that worried? Yeah, if they lose <laughs> to Carolina, we're, we're having a whole nother discussion. And I just haven't seen vintage Tom Brady much this year. And so this is the opportunity against a team that you should, you know, do well against, uh, you know, 
let's see what you do. And if they lose, that's when we're having a whole different conversation. In the last 11 days, the Carolina Panthers have fired their head coach, traded their number two wide receiver, and traded their number one franchise running back. That's in the last 11 days. This uh, Carolina tank job is going through and through. Brock, we've only got time for one hockey thought here. We've already talked about the Ottawa Senators this week, so let's pass by them. Give me a thought on your Toronto Maple Leafs matching up with the Winnipeg Jets this weekend. Uh, I like the matchup. Toronto is, uh, you know, still trying to figure their way out into things and still trying to figure out what's going on uh, with the team. They've got goaltending injuries. They've got injuries a little bit on the back end. Mm. What is this team going to be? Winnipeg is a bit of a, uh, a question mark, too. This is a team, again, before you go on this, California trip, which seems to be a bit of a death trip for anyone that goes over there. Not so much in the last few years as it has been in the past, but for Toronto overall, it's been a a death trip. So you need to kind of get on the right foot here against Winnipeg because you just never know what happens when you go over to California and and play those those teams because they're always, no matter where where they are in their rebuilds or, or where they are in their organization wannabes, they can they can put up good good mm. games. And so Toronto's got to be on their best uh, over the next you know seven or eight games. And let's see where they are. It was a good win last night for Toronto though, beating the Dallas Stars. Dallas Stars are a quality team, although they were rolling up their uh, second string goalie Scott Wedgwood for the uh, Stars last night. So maybe it takes a little bit of the shine off that win. But Dallas is a good team, so I thought that was a nice win by Toronto last night. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. And and you know a team that's that's three and zero when they're three and zero, it's 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 not a joke and. I think Toronto uh, gave away a game on the homestand. Oof, uh, against, did they ever uh, in Arizona? Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a game you should you should never give away. And so I think they could have had a little bit of a better record. But they did They did sort of bounce back and, and look good last night against a uh, backup uh, goaltender, who also, in fairness, looked looked really, mm-hmm. really good as well for, for what you would expect. I mean, Toronto had, like, 40 odd shots and at one point he had saved you know 38 of them so that's that's a pretty good test if you're a goaltender and second string to boot so brock we've literally been talking about sports for 20 minutes we gotta go have a great day <laughs> you too <laughs> that's brock richardson at the ami sports desk i could talk to brock for the rest of the hour but we must move on we have to hand the baton over to alex Smythe for the national weather updates Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 13. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly sunny and a high of 15. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly sunny as well, but 14 is the high. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 11. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 15. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 14. Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and it's also a high of 14. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's sunny with increasing cloud cover as the day moves on and a high of 11. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's cloudy with rain beginning this morning and a high of 8. 
in Red Deer, Alberta. Cloudy with rain expected this morning before becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 8. In Whitehorse, Yukon, a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of showers and 7 is the high. Over to Kelowna, BC, it's cloudy with showers expected this afternoon and an air quality statement is in effect due to the smoke in the area. The high is 10. Finally, in Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with rain off and on today and they also have that special air quality statement in effect, and the high is 11. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Michael McNeely will offer up his thoughts on the Superfest Disability Film Festival. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown. Let's bring in Michael McNeely, our entertainment critic, to talk about a really interesting film festival going on that we're super excited to talk about. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm well. Always fun to catch up with you. So, Michael, we are talking about the Superfest Disability Film Festival. What can you tell me about it? So, I can tell you that it was... um... It was created in 1970 in in a different shape and form, but it's still the same spirit. Essentially, the organizers wanted to promote films and entertainment starring and being created by people with disabilities. I just read an article that said back in 2016, they had a film about two women who were both blind and pursuing a relationship. And that this was probably one of the first times where people got to see a relationship between two blind people on the screen. So that's the kind of groundbreaking work that the Superfest Disability Film Festival does. What's really interesting, though, is that they have a few different spin-offs, including in Russia, which I was very surprised with, but I shouldn't be, because there's a lot of disability activists in Russia who would really enjoy this entertainment as well. So... Essentially, Dave, it's been around for more than 50 years, and it's got a long history, and it's really all about just promoting people with disabilities telling their own stories. Mm. So this festival is taking place in California, but people can still enjoy this one from abroad. You had a chance to speak with one of the organizers of the festival, Emily Betix, who mentioned there are lots of ways that people at home can access the films. You've actually got a clip here. You interviewed her and shared the clip with us. So let's take a watch and listen as she explains how folks can enjoy the festival. Our film festival, you can go to superfestfilm.org. And that is a great place to learn more uh, and get all the information you need. Um, we will be screening all of the films on a site called Eventive. And so um, from the F- Superfest film site, you'll be able to link off to Eventive, and that's where you'll actually get your pass. And um, I will I will give the warning in terms of the access work. It's still a work in progress. There's some ways that Eventive isn't you know, perfect. We, we heard reports last year that like, Folks were able to access it, but there were just some features that they were that were pretty wonky. And that's another place we've been doing some advocacy because it's been very it was very disappointing 
looking at the huge influx of all of these film festival platforms and how few of them were doing any work to talk to blind people, to, to think about being screen reader accessible. So Aventive is, it's still got some tweaks uh, to, to work on, but it is uh, the only site we found where they were really showing a commitment to working with blind people to, to making their site better. Uh, and so um, it is a usable site. Um, so yeah, you can get your pass on Aventive. Uh, all of our films screen with audio description. You will have the option to toggle on audio description. Uh, all of the Sunday screening films, they're organized into screening. So all of the Sunday screening films also have the option where you use a, an accompanying app on your phone to access ASL that you can watch along with the video. So it's video translated into American Sign Language. Um, and uh, all of the films also have captioning. And uh, the there's an app you can use with the film called Access for All that also allows uh, the captioning to be available on a um, Braille reader. So uh, many different ways to access the film, lots of details on our website about how to get there. We've got some open tech hours, you know, and if, if for some reason you are just, this site is not working anything, just let us know because we are very much committed to like anybody who wants to see these films gets to see this, these films. If it means we're hosting a Zoom a couple of weeks after the festival to do a screening that's just more accessible, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out because as I said, access is very much a work in progress. So Michael, that's how we access the festival. And once we've established that, what are some of the films that are screening that we're looking forward to? Well, it's a good question, but first I just want to add one statement to what Emily has said. She's mentioned a lot of accessible um, features, but there's also the accessible feature of a slide and scale to, to pay to watch these films. If you can't afford it, then you don't have to pay anything. But if you can't afford it, um, you can pay $15 or $20 to watch all of these films. So I think that's really quite, quite uh, worth stating mm -hmm. because the financial barrier can prevent many from watching films in other parts of the world, other film festivals. And so to get back to your question, Dave, um, I just watched a few films this morning just to prove that this festival is up and going. You can actually start on it right now. So I was watching a few online. I watched um, one called Don Julio's Nails, and it's a story about a man who has Parkinson's and he's trying to get his nails clipped. I understand that this may not seem like the most exciting storyline, but I really appreciated it because it shows how much we depend on other people to help us. And sometimes we can't get them to help us unless we help them first. So that's 10 minutes. I just recommend that one. I also recommend another film called BBAI. It's the story of a couple who have Down syndrome and they're trying to adopt an AI baby because I guess that's what the world is like at the time. Everyone has an AI baby. And um, non-surprisingly, they're discriminated against by the adoption agency who believes that they cannot take care of a baby. So they take matters in their own hands, more or less. And so I think it's a, it's a really enjoyable short film. And I would like to see more of that storyline because the short film doesn't finish the storyline. Um, so I think there's, there's something for everybody at this festival. There's 20 films at least 20 films, maybe 21 films. But um, I think across the board, 
there's something for everybody. Yeah, it seems like it's a really wide variety of offerings that they're doing here, which requires quite a bit of cultivation and curation from the festival's point of view. So when you spoke to Emily, Emily also talked about the type of films they try to include in the festival and the type they try to avoid. The criteria, you know, uh, what we are looking for, I mean, I can I can rant pretty heavily for ways to be a guaranteed no for Superfest because that's a, a really important educational lesson. You know, if, if the first five minutes of your film has had a doctor, a parent, and we haven't heard the disabled person talk, like, <laughs> that's, that's a no. Uh, uh, you know, we're really looking for films that are centering on disability expertise, uh, we, of course, particularly enjoy films that are made by disabled people, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we've had plenty of some of the most amazing films are actually made by an ally who just really does the research, really listens and engages with disability community. Um, we like the films to be, we are pretty strict about uh, the films must be acted by disabled people if it's a disabled character. There are some exceptions to that occasionally um, uh, if if there's a character that's going through transitions and, uh, you know, but um, but if, if, it, if it can be played by a disabled person, it, it most definitely should. Uh, and then other than that, we're looking for things that surprise us. I mean, we had a horror film last year and that was so exciting. We had sci-fi. Um, we want films that really push the envelope and show that a disability film festival doesn't just have to be this sort of like pedantic films teaching us about disability that they can be avant-garde and outside the box and funny and sexy like we want we want all of that um so we would love to see your film i will say that the festival tends to skew towards shorts um that's not like a clear you know bias it just has to do with the fact that there's a lot more resources go into getting access to make a feature film. And so, uh, you know, those types of resources are often not available to folks who are making stories that are kind of pushing the envelope and, and not buying into some of those disability traits. Michael, what's your reaction to that criteria? How do you feel about that? Like all of us should pick up a film and so we should pick up a camera and we should start making films because I think there's no reason why we can't participate. We have lots of stories to tell. It's about time that we started telling them. I do think that Emily Emily brings up many valid points about disability films. Sometimes, you know, um, we have a lot of films that it's plain we're having a disability is. Like, for example, we might have a film that explains what Parkinson's is. We we'll have a film that explains what it means to have vision loss. I think we can, we can pass that now. I think we, we can assume that everybody can do their research, they can look it up online from a, from a reliable source to learn about what a disability is. So let's move on to the next stage. Let's tell stories about people with disabilities and show a day in their lives. Let's show them falling in love. Let's show them having families. Let's show them you know, living their lives with dignity or maybe not dignity. Maybe that's not the point that you want to make. Maybe you want to show people with disabilities can screw up just as much as everybody else. But I think it's time to tell those stories and not to worry about explaining what the disability is. Michael, we've talked about the festival, the films, the criteria. Where should people go to find out more? Well, people can go and find out more at their website. It's um, www.superfestfilm, 
www.ghostbusters.com, I believe. But I'm, I'm sure you haven't. You put the link up on the website. Um, and I think people should just start watching films today because you don't have a lot of time. You can start today to Sunday. Michael, we are grateful for the work that you did on this. Thank you so much for going over and above and arranging that interview and providing us with those clips. I hope you enjoy a lot more of these films, and we'll talk to you again next week. Yes, and for anybody watching, if you have any, any information about any accessible film festivals or film festivals about disability, please feel free to shoot, it, shoot an email to us, and we will be happy to talk about them. Thank you. Yeah, if folks want to do reach out to us, it's uh, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Keep us in the loop. Give us your pitches. We're always interested in hearing in what you're up to. That's Michael McNeely. He's our entertainment critic in Kingston, Ontario. Coming up after the break, we'll find out what's cracking with Rumia. Actually, we won't. Rumia's not working. Rumia's not working today because a member of the Kelly Co. crew is getting married. Nonetheless, we'll catch up with Alex and Nazreen. Maybe we'll drag Eliza into the conversation, too. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Just a couple of minutes to catch up with Nazreen Abdel-Majid on this Friday. Hey, good morning, Nazreen. Good morning. So, Nazreen, frost has officially hit the ground in southern Ontario. That beautiful pool behind you probably shut down for the winter here. Nazreen, it's not a secret to regular viewers of this show that I run extremely hot. So even when it's between sort of 2 degrees and 14 degrees, my wardrobe stays about the same. But how do you manage your fall wardrobe? You mean other than obsessing over furry uh, socks and fuzzy blankets and fuzzy everything? <laughs> a lot of fuzz. And wrapping up <laughs> myself like a burrito in my bed all day. Um, I think I just organize my clothes now. So I separate my summer clothes from uh, winter clothes, which is pretty depressing to me because I love my summer clothes. Back in the day when you used to haul butt all the way from Mississauga up here to North York to come to the office and you were taking like 72 different buses to do it, how much would you pack with you in terms of layers, like coats or windbreakers or sweaters? Like, How did you manage that? I absolutely hated carrying jackets because, as you know, we have like four seasons in one day for uh, in Canada. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's freezing cold in the morning and then later on, it's not as bad, even in the winter time, you know. So I I did use to layer up. And with arthritis, I had to wear leggings oh, yeah, underneath my jeans yeah. sometimes. If it gets really bad, that's what I needed to do, which I absolutely despise. I don't like doing that. It just feels so uncomfortable, especially when you have a long commute. Mm. Um, so I I didn't like that. Did you used to do that, or like, do you? How do you layer up? So I I like I mentioned from about two degrees till about twelve degrees. I'm I'm pretty stable. I can get away with just jeans and a sweater, and I'm totally fine. But typically, what I'll do around this time of year is I've got a little windbreaker that can just bunch up and take up almost no room in any given bag and that'll just be there as a, li a almost literal security blanket that it's just something I can throw on in case the weather really turns on me I know in the office I kept a uh, throw and a sweater 
a few sweaters actually. So while I'm on the computer in the office, I had something to cover up. So that helped a lot. Yeah, and let because me... <laughs> you know we were always in professional clothes, so I I would sneak some uh, blanket over me without anyone knowing. So well, yeah. you you were in professional clothes. I walk around this place in t-shirts and cargo shorts, but uh, that's because I'm uh, very comfortable in my own skin. Nazreen, we got to get out of here, but I want you to have a lovely weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, you too. That's Nasreen Abdelmajid, incredible producer behind the scenes here at AMI and a regular contributor on Now with Dave Brown. Coming up next, International Artist Day is next week. Karen McKay will feature several books that celebrate art. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's wrap up the Friday show and wrap up our broadcast week by finding out what's going on in the world of inclusive literature. Karen McKay is the communications manager at the Center for Equitable Library Access and joins us to talk about what's going on in the literary world and offer up a couple featured selections for you as well. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning. Karen, you've always got the inside scoop on all the literary awards going on, and that includes the Governor General Literary Awards. They announced their finalists this week. So let's start here. What do the Governor General Literary Awards celebrate? Well, like many of the other awards that we've been talking about, they celebrate Canadian literature and authors and and writing. There's seven categories for this um, award in two different languages, so 14 different categories. So Oof. there is a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of books that they highlight. Um, some of the ones are ones that we, you know, might not read a lot about: English to French translation, French to English translation, uh, drama. Uh, but we focus with with our relationship with the governor generals. We focus on making sure that the sort of the big name books, so the fiction and nonfiction in both French and English are in our collection. Right. So I was going to ask that follow-up question there, how these award, awards and competitions end up uh, being a bit of a guiding light for an organization like CELA. Well, we know that people want to read books that have buzz. And in the Canadian literature, it's, it's award season. And so these are the books that often have buzz. Um, what I love about this year's selections for the Governor Generals is there's some familiar names, but there's also some some books and some names that we might not otherwise know. So I think the awards in general are doing a, a really great job of highlighting new and upcoming writers, of making sure that it's not just the same old canon of literature that we're being exposed to. Uh, there's lots of diverse voices. There's lots of very diverse perspectives. There's authors of, of color. There's Indigenous authors. And so for to answer your question, they these awards sort of help guide some of the books that we want to buy and that we want to highlight in our communications and our promotion mm. to make sure that people know that they're out there and that they can participate in these conversations, right? There's lots of opportunities to do book clubs and, and you know, libraries do a lot of promotion around these sorts of books. And so we want to make sure they're accessible to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Karen, let's jump over to your featured selections. International Artists Day is next week and you want to highlight books that celebrate art. So let's begin here. What the Ermine Saw by Eden Collinsworth. 
Yeah, so this is a new one to our collection. It was published in May of 2022, so it's a new book. Um, and I thought this was a really interesting selection to talk about. So there are only four portraits of women known to be painted by uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And this is the story of one of them and how it came to be. So the painting is called Lady with Ermine. And the model for that painting was a, a young woman named Cecilia Gallerani. And she was the mistress of a very influential duke in Milan. And her, her lover was a very ruthless man and he was aware of Leonardo's uh, sort of rising prominence and, and knew what a painting of his um, of his mistress would do to reflect his own political power. So the it's a very interesting painting. The, the woman's looking away from the, the artist and she's holding an ermine, which is known to be rather a vicious animal. So it's kind of an odd juxtaposition. She's a beautiful young uh, young woman. And we get to follow this painting through the through its history. So uh, Da Vinci actually kept Lady for Ermine for years. He changed the number of times and he actually added the Ermine later, changed its size and color, and then it went on to the Duke until the Duke got married and his his wife sent the mistress and her child and the painting out of the house. And then the world loses track of this painting. There's no records of, of its provenance for about 250 years. And then in the 1800s, it was purchased in um, Italy by a, a noble Pol uh, Polish nobleman. And he bought it for his mother. And we follow the painting through. It ends up in the hands of the Nazi high command. There's a struggle over who gets to own it. Um, Hitler wants it added to its private, his private collection. And so the painting, we get to sort of see the world through the painting's eyes. Um, some of the most, you know, um, uh, disruptive times in, in history until it comes to rest in a museum in Poland where it still is right now. So we learn not just about Leonardo da Vinci and the times that he uh, was painting in and the politics and the culture, but also we sort of follow that painting through, through history. What's interesting about this painting is that it changed not only portraiture, but also its purpose. And it becomes um, in some ways part of a power structure. So it's a beautifully researched book. It's not academic, it's historical, uh, but it's not fiction, but it is, um, it reads like fiction. It's really, I love books that take one element of a, of a, a culture and use it to explain mm. the history that's happening around it. it. It sounds kind of thrilling. It almost sounds like a thrilling read, just loaded with interest, interesting little tidbits in it and, and a historical look at art. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I think folks will really love this one. And you get to learn interesting little bits. Like, I did not realize that um, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was ambidextrous and that he painted with both hands. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, which is cool. So you learn lots of, like, interesting tidbits great to drop at a dinner party or something too i can't paint with one hand so i mean that's really remarkable <laughs> I know, we you are. can use too uh karen <laughs> let's jump over to what's so funny by david cypress yeah so this is another new one in our collection it was published earlier this year and it's a memoir by the new yorker cartoonist david cypress so we get to meet his new york city upper west side jewish family his dad uh grew up in he's Jewish and he grew up in grinding poverty in Russia and he immigrated to the U.S. and he was a self-made businessman who ran a very upscale jewelry store. David's mother was um, a bit neurotic and his sister had some fairly severe emotional problems. So David escapes by drawing and cartooning and it's a creative outlet for him. We get to sort of see the, the progression of his life. There's some funny stories. He uh, tricked his sister into rocketing a pet turtle out of his bedroom window um, and we learn that he walks away 
away from his PhD at Harvard uh, in Russian history because he wants to be a professional cartoonist. So throughout the book, his cartoons are sort of sprinkled in and they give us a really kind of an aha moment about where uh, cartoonists and artists get their ideas from. It's funny, it's sad, it's melancholic. um, And I think it's just an interesting insight into a different kind of artist, not a fine artist, but a cultural artist. And and I, I think folks will appreciate the insights gained into art and its its muse. Karen, as always, I have desperately mismanaged the clock, so I have to hold you to one minute on This Is What I Know About Art by Kimberly Drew. Well, that'll be a quick book because it's a little tiny uh, volume, but it's basically, it's a young woman named Kimberly Drew, and she reminds us that art is uh, has space for not just the elite, or every, but for everyone. Uh, she wants to um, take away the whitewashing that's happened in fine art, and so she's a young woman. She does an internship at a museum in Harlem and changes her life, and she wants to talk to people about the impact of black artists and underrepresented artists and why their voices matter in this space and how we can create space for them. Karen, I know you've got two more here. We don't have time to get to them today. So I tell you what, when we talk to you again in two weeks, let's do a double featured selections. Let's finish up what you've got here and then we'll do a separate one. So we'll just be giving people so much for their reading list that we can send them retreating for a couple of weeks. Awesome. That'll be great. That's Karen McKay, the communications manager at the Center for Equitable Library Access. And of course, you can follow them on social media at CELA Library, C-E-L-A Library. And always fun catching up with Karen. And I always feel bad because I desperately mismanage the clock. And the reason why I end up doing it is because on a Friday show, we need to take a little bit of time before we say goodbye to say thank you to the people who make this show a reality. Of course, you hear from our co-host and producer Alex Smythe on the regular. Brock Richardson is a delight every single day. Our senior show producer is Andrika Delanerol, continues to be on vacation. Hopefully she's enjoying herself. Our TV technical producer, amongst many different hats, is Bruce Baclarian. We get production help behind the scenes from Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion Jones. We have a production team of Daniel Penamondo, Eliza Rocco, and Kingsley Juco, who we're grateful for, for all the work you guys do behind the scenes. Of course, we also get help on the podcast front from Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Grace Scofield, technical help from our tech services team, Paula Deneen, Andy Frank. There's so many people who make this show a reality. And of course, a big thank you to you as well for joining us. We'll be back again on Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.